you got to get passionate about this thing. If the cross doesn't move you, nothing will move you. I'm offering you something that's greater than silver and gold. I'm offering you something that's greater than an increase in your pay on your job. I'm offering you a... There's no shortcuts to the glory. We've got to get past week-to-week living. We've got to multiply our prayer life. We've got to multiply our efforts. And we are willing to give. God will always give it back to us in good measure. That is pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Hey, thanks for checking out our Christian Life Church podcast. You will be hearing from one of our pastors or guest speakers, either at our Frankfurt or Lebanon campus. Prepare your hearts and your minds to receive a word from God. Thanks for listening. Enjoy and receive this message. Without any further ado, can we get into the Word of God tonight? Genesis chapter 26 and verse number 18. Genesis 26 and verse 18. I'll let you be seated right after this. And Isaac digged again the wells of water, which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called their names after the name by which his father had called them. Tonight, for just a few moments, a simple title called Redigging, Filling, and Spreading. Sometimes, when you get the opportunity to teach or preach in front of a congregation, you try to impress people and all sorts of different things, and then there's some times where you just want to stand firm on what you know to be true. And tonight, I feel like that's one of those nights where I just want to stand firm on what I know to be true. Can we one more time, if you'd put your Bibles down, could we just ask God to anoint not only my lips and my heart, but truly this time we have together. Lord, we thank you, Jesus. Lord, we ask you again, God, to have your way tonight. Lord, we thank you for every opportunity to be here, Jesus. We thank you for this place. Lord, we thank you for a a house of God that we can worship in, a place we know where you'll heal God and you'll touch and deliver. Lord, I pray, have your way in me, Lord, tonight. Anoint my lips. Let me speak with clarity and understanding, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Turn to your neighbors, say, I'm glad I'm here tonight, and feel free to have a seat in Jesus' name. This might be the most Bible study of a Bible study that I have ever done in my life, and I hope and pray that you can all keep up. Is that all right? I asked our young people a few questions a couple weeks ago. And, or at least I thought they were simple questions. I asked them simply, do you know what it takes to be saved? And some would say yes, some would say no, and, and I got a little deeper. Okay, so could you quote me a scripture that tells you what it means to be saved? And I think I had one tiny little voice in the crowd begin to speak Acts 2 and 38, and they would quietly get through it, and the rest would kind of look around, and I'd say, okay, can you prove that that is the absolute way, and I, you know, I get a little deeper. Again, some were simple questions, some not so much, but I figured out quickly that even though we cover it constantly in youth class, that every now and then we need to know who we serve and why we serve him. And so tonight, I want to redig a well, first and foremost, that we serve the mighty God. 
And if I could just unstop this well of confusion that has not only hit our youth but and our children possibly, but also some of us. Some of us have, the, the longer we're in this world, the more some of us transform into this world. We get confused and, and, and all of a sudden it, we say, well, maybe it doesn't matter if we hold standard or maybe it doesn't matter if we stay true to scripture. And I'm trying to say tonight that it does matter. It matters much. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, a scripture I ask, can anybody tell me what that scripture says? And, and there was silence in the room on this, so I'll read it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thine soul and with all thy might. And I'll continue a little bit up to verse 9. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and, upon thy, uh, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and upon thy gates. If there's one thing the children of Israel knew to do, it was to talk, live, eat, sleep, and breathe that there is one God. And so there should never be a confusion about who God is. I'll, I'll continue on uh, uh, quickly. Uh, to this point, uh, again, there were timid answers, and, and, and not a lot of people remembered. One person quoted uh, scripture, but ultimately there was a little bit known about who God is, but not much. In that scripture, it says, hear, O Israel, there was never a thought in the children's minds that there is but one God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, a couple chapters earlier says, unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. Verse 39 says, and also that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath, there is none else. Now, I do a lot of research with debates. I'm not a debate guy. I don't get in that world. I'm not going to fight you over something. But I definitely want to know what the other side thinks sometimes. And the opposite of monotheism, everybody know what monotheism is? Great. Praise the Lord. Or polytheism. <laughs> Y'all stick with me. I promise. We'll be done by 8. Is that all right? If somebody stands up and worships at 8 o'clock, I'll know that's my time. I promise you I will stop on that button if I see that, so we'll know that. But I have a clock, so don't lie. Don't be standing up early. But in monotheism, there's a thought of one God. But in our world, it happened years ago with some councils where they would meet. The church of God would begin to meet a council of Nicaea uh, where they had the Nicaean Creed. There's, there's different councils where they would meet uh, and try to, def to define who God is. And they ultimately came to that council, and they were going to vote, are there one God or are there two? And in that, they came out and said, there's three. So there was enough confusion in the church at that time that we didn't even understand because we never kept Deuteronomy in the picture. 
I know that this is Old Testament. I know that this is law, and this is more of a, a children of Israel slash Jewish thing. But ultimately, I feel sometimes we don't keep the fact that there's one God above all, through all, and in you all that we've got to say to our children. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen? I know it's the same stuff over and over, but if we don't talk about it, how will our kids know? How will our kids know? And so very early in training, they trained themselves to train the next generation. They made it plain. There's none beside him. He is God. It says it almost 20 additional times in the same wording. There is none beside me. There is no one else. All throughout the Old Testament, it was made plain that there is one God. Again, this matters because some people think that there are three distinct, not separate, but distinct identities to who God is. Some say that there's a father, a son, and a spirit. We don't deny this because that is what the Bible says to a point. We don't deny the father and son relationship and that that was a part of the word of God. But to think that I have to pray to a son to get to God is just simply not what the Bible says. Amen? Just making sure. Some of you, okay. We'll get to the rest of you. And so, typically, I want to know where they start out. And they also, some that believe a different way, will start out in Genesis uh, chapter 1 as well in verse 26. And it says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And some begin to, uh, to believe that this is the proof that there are us in heaven. And they'll begin to decipher who is the us. Anybody ever heard that before? But it never really says who us is. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, there were kings in Ezra and different uh, books of the Bible where kings would give creeds and different things. Sovereign kings, there's none beside the king, right? Yet he would say, we declare. Nobody questioned the king. Nobody thought his wife had the same voice that the king did. <laughs> we don't go down that route. But the king was sovereign. Yet when he said we, they understood it's him and his people. There's never a question of who we was. Yet for some reason in the Bible, when God said we, and the, if you read the rest of that scripture, it says that uh, uh, he came down and he ultimately made man himself in, in his image, not in their image. And he breathed, not they breathed, the breath of life into him, into man. It was a he thing. It was a one thing. And so I have a tough time when I understand that they have one verse that says, let us make man, but I don't have a tough time when I read it 20 times that there is none besides him. No, not one. There is nobody besides God. In fact, John chapter 12, verse uh, 32, Jesus begins to get to this point. We, and again, we don't deny the father-the-son relationship. Uh, in fact, uh, the way we describe Jesus is that he is 100% God and 100% flesh. Right? You ever think about that? The Bible constantly calls him the son of God. But I've never read once where it calls him God the son. It matters. We've always said when writing a, a, a check to somebody, if I was to sign it father or son or, or husband, that it would never get cashed. Because the name mattered, right? Again, I want to redig a well. I know y'all looking at me like we read this all the time, 
I understand it, but I hope that there will be uh, somewhere something that we can understand. So uh, he doesn't pray. Uh, the Bible says when Jesus prays that he begins to pray to God. This, again, is a confusing part. Why does Jesus have the need to pray? You ever question that? Drove me nuts. For years, I used to think he's God. He's all God. He's all flesh. Why does he need to pray? And then I began to think about it in terms that I might understand. The truth is, I hate the dentist. Those people. (laughs) But I will set up an appointment knowing that I need to visit the dentist. And I will honor the appointment, and I will go, and then as I get there, they will might say, well, it's been a few years. We need to do some ultrasonic cleaning, and I will find myself getting nervous and having great, great sweat drops like blood, just like Jesus. And I'll begin to cry out even to myself, please, why do we have to do this? Nobody questions me in my sanity saying I cried out to myself or I begin to ask, do we really have to go through with this? Is this really necessary? But when Jesus cried out to God, let this cup pass from me, all of a sudden we get confused about who God is. All of a sudden they use that as a, as a way to do it. Um, and, and I might jump ahead here, but uh, Matthew 28, 19. I want to do my best to describe everything I can that I know about the oneness of God. Is that all right? Again, Deuteronomy 6, the Bible says that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You teach it to them, you write it on the doorpost, you put it on their wrist, you staple it to the forehead. There is one God. It was plain and clear. And then, truly, people that believe in more of a a polytheistic approach where there's multiple gods that we all serve, they would say, well, what about Matthew 28, 19, right? And the Bible says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, a lot of people have described this. Again, I'll describe it the same way. If if this was a check, I was going to write somebody for $1,000. And I put my name as the father of Morrison or the son of Wayne and Jackie or the brother to Jeremy. It wouldn't really matter. It's a junk check. We can try it. But it's, now you might forge it. It's a junk check. But here's the truth. I want to get a little deeper. Do you know why Matthew wrote it like that? This is called the Great Commission. It's in every gospel. You all know that? Every single gospel has the Great Commission. But this is the one they choose. The truth is if we went to Matthew chapter 1, it would rank up there with awesome chapters of the Bible right with all of chronological, or chron, uh, Chronicles because it's nothing but begots. So-and-so begot so-and-so. And he begot so-and-so, and Noah had three sons, and of those three sons, they had four sons each, and, and they had seven sons and four wives and a couple of cousins. It would drive us nuts. Matthew wrote to the Jews. What did the Jews believe? Deuteronomy chapter 6. You see, when we take it back and we can understand why this was written and why it was written the way it was written, we can easily understand that this is not talking about three gods. This is telling the Jews, if you know who the Father is and you can figure out who the Son is, you've got it all wrapped up and you know how to be baptized. He spoke to them. Do you realize in the book of Ezra, it talks about it. The Jews never quite have gotten it right. Ever since Jesus has been gone, the Holy Ghost came and the age of the church began. You see where, uh, if you don't know anything about the history, about 70 A.D., all of Israel was uh, attacked and it just spread them out throughout the world. It spread Christianity everywhere. But then the Jewish faith went back to a thought process of law. 
This is why they still believe in things like kosher, where you don't mix the living with the dead. You don't have milk and steak in the same, uh, even on the same table. And so with that, there's an understanding that they did not fully accept what the Bible was telling. And in the book of Ezra, it says that when he comes back, they will begin to say, Lord, Lord, who did this to you? As they begin to look at his hands and the, and the, the nail-scarred hands and the feet, and they begin to look at him, and he will say, as the, the scales fall off their eyes, these are the scars I got in the house of my friends. It was a way for him to say that this happened when you didn't know who I was. It still happens. So that is, again, line upon line why we serve Jesus. I want to jump back into Genesis chapter 35 and 11. Something very interesting that God had made mention at the very beginning. He says, and God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Can we read that together? And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. What does Almighty mean? Almighty. It's everything. We know that to be God. God said in the Old Testament, I am almighty. Knowing that God is almighty, in Genesis 1 and chapter 2, it says that the earth was without form and void when it was being made, but the Spirit is what moved across the face of the deep. You see, some people believe that in, in John's vision, Revelation, am I moving too fast? I know I'm like, I, I listen to myself. <laughs> I, if you walk through my house trying to fix it and you went from the bathroom to the garage to the attic and then the basement, I'd kick you out. <laughs> Say, you don't know what you're doing, you're all over. So hopefully you're following me as I go on this crazy little rabbit hole trip. Y'all all right? We're getting closer. Look at that, 15, 17 minutes. And so it says in Genesis 1, chapter 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, if God is God Almighty, why in the world is the Spirit moving across the face of the waters? When we look in the New Testament, here's a truth about these three, we call them manifestations of God. That's a term that we use being apostolic believers. We say that these are the manifestations of God. This is how God showed himself to us. In the Old Testament, he was Yeshua, Yahweh, El Shaddai, Elohim. He was all these names. There's name after name. The I am that I am. That's who he was in the Old Testament. God, Father of all. In New Testament, the Gospels, he became Jesus. The lamb for sinners slain from the foundation of the world. He became our savior. And then from Acts to the end, he becomes the Holy Ghost. You see, it's not that all three are either trying to coexist or not coexist or one's in power, one's not. The truth is he knows I've got to change who I am to make my plan work, to get us, when we were separated from, you know, from him with sin, to get back to being in kinship with him. So it required us to, to go through this process to see a, a baby being born. And, and there is scripture that says that great is the mystery of the Godhead. And it's, it's something that can't be fully understood. And so what attempt am I trying to make to understand it? I think sometimes even in uh, all of his craftiness, the devil's greatest uh, uh, plan is to throw confusion into things like knowing who God is. And in throwing in that confusion, it makes us feel like we can't teach it because nobody can possibly know all about it. Right? 
And maybe I don't know all about it. Maybe I'm not 100% sure how 100% of God can be in a baby Jesus. Maybe I can't understand what no beginning is like. Maybe I really don't understand what eternity is like. You're right. I'm not going to understand it all. But there's so much I believe that we can come to understanding with. That we can say this is still what we believe. It's still okay to teach our children that there's one Lord. It's still okay to say that we need to be baptized. I don't want the next generation to question baptism. Do you realize every church, when you go back in their books and you look at the Catholics, you look at the Baptists and uh, the, the Pro Protestants and the Presbyterians, all these churches, originally, years ago, a few centuries ago, they would all baptize in full submersion in the name of Jesus Christ. But then they stopped teaching what they knew to be doctrine. You ever want to know if you're following something false? Especially in your beliefs and in your salvation, it's when it changes. Salvation will never change. Sound doctrine, as the Bible quotes it, never changes. That's what sound means. If you have a sound foundation, that means your building is okay. Soundness matters. Do you know why he never called it the Jesus doctrine? I love this part. When I, when I start to study it and realize it, I'm probably jumping ahead. They never called it the Jesus doctrine because it wasn't fulfilled until he was dead, buried, rose again, ascended 40 days later, and said, okay, now go wait until you be endued with power. It's not his doctrine. He's not really there for it. It was when the Holy Ghost came that the apostles then started the church, and now that's why we have the apostles' doctrine. That's why we're apostolic or apostolitic, however they pronounce it out there. This is why we are who we are. It's not just a name. It doesn't mean we just dress goofy and don't use hairspray or something crazy like that. It means that we're going to follow the Bible according to the apostles. All of that stuff matters. Uh, and so moving forward, John chapter 6, uh, I'm sorry, John chapter 7, verse 16 and 17, it says, uh, when you see him, he spoke of doctrine. He said, it isn't my doctrine. Jesus answered and said, my doctrine is not mine. But his that sent me, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak it myself. Again, we are born into the apostolic doctrine because it took Jesus' death to get us there. This is why we don't baptize under repentance anymore. In fact, throughout the entire New Testament, when they talked about baptism, everybody that was baptized was baptized after his death in the name of Jesus Christ. Even John's disciples came up, the ones that were baptized under repentance, and said, do we have to do this again? And they said, how are you baptized? And they admitted, yes, under repentance. He said, okay, now we're here. Yes, be baptized again. It matters that we keep what the Bible says. It has not changed since that day until now. In fact, we live in what's called a dispensation. This dispensation is a period of time in which God deals with us in a specific way. And he's chose to deal with us in grace. Thank God for grace. Because I'm not Jewish. And without grace, I don't have a chance. Anybody 100% Jewish in here? I'm in good company. We don't have a chance without grace. Grace is what it took for me and you to have the opportunity to be baptized. And it would be a shame if it's something I don't teach my children Hey, son, Solly, 
little one-tooth wonder, it's still one God. Charlie, listen, you're beautiful, it matters, and, and it matters that we, we, we show our children who, who they are and how much we love them, amen? Because <laughs> if I don't, somebody's going to show my daughter, it better be me. And so as I love her, I've got to instill in her, this is still the only way. That's why at six years old, I, I almost questioned her, are you sure you're ready to be baptized? And I had her explain it to me time and time again, okay, what does that mean? It means that my sins are all gone. I said, absolutely. I had to redig a well. I had to make sure, man. Whew. I'm going to move on. Move on for my sake and yours. But the truth is that there comes a time when it's no longer my parents' religion. Young people hear me. There comes a time where it's not their church. It's not their beliefs. It's not their Sunday night service that I go to, but it becomes mine. And it's only going to become mine when I understand what I'm doing here. Some of us, even, even maybe spouses, a wife, a husband, somebody that you feel like you're just going through the motions, this keeps your spouse quiet if you'll just show up to church, if you don't even pay attention, and you'll begin to let the wells be filled up with rocks, carcasses with dirt to stop up your very belief in why you even go to church. There was one question that baffled me. We had a full youth room. It's been a few months ago. And I asked a simple question about another uh, religion, and I asked, is this a peaceful religion? And truly, it's a religion that uh, quite often exercises war. And a lot of times, it's not one that we share any ideals with. And three hands went up and said, yeah, it's peaceful. And I said, is this a religion that you like and that you trust? And again, the hands went up on a, on a place where I thought, my Lord, how can you trust some of these things? And then when you begin to look at their lives, what do you believe? Where do you stand? And they say, I don't have a clue. It's amazing what they do and don't know. And parents, it lies on us. Not the ministry, but me as a parent. It's in my court to make sure my child knows. It took all the way until Acts chapter 2 for this final phase of, of salvation to happen. And in Acts 2, verse 1 through 4, it talks about how uh, the Holy Ghost fell, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But I want to jump to what happened in Acts 2.38. The Bible says that Peter preached. He preached, amen. At the end of preaching, they all came up to him and said, hey, men and brethren, what are we supposed to do? They were pricked in their hearts, and they wondered, what must we do to be saved? This is how I know this verse matters. This is why it's like the one thing we stand on, Right? It happened all throughout the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament. But thank God, it's, it's plain as day. It says in Acts 2 and 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I love to talk about remission. In fact, my eyes have been opened. I'm not sure who said it from up here, but when cancer's in remission, it's dead and on its way out. I love when God can take all of our sins through baptism, through his name, and they're dead, gone, and on the way out. In an instant. 
I love that about him. The Bible says line upon line, precept upon precept. Here's what I love about the word of God as well. As cool as that verse is, you know where else I found examples of this? All the way back at the beginning. Numbers chapter 31, verse 21 and 23. It says that Eleazar the priest said unto them, uh, unto the men of war which were at the uh, which went to battle, this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 23 reads, Everything that may abide in the fire, you shall make it go through the fire, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall be purified with the water of separation, and all that abideth not in the fire, ye shall make go through the water. You see, it was showing us a type and shadow of what was to come. I love that. At the end of your battle, when you're done fighting, and when you're ready to turn everything over, when you're ready to get cleansed, you have to throw that which can be in fire into the fire. And that which can go through the water in the water. That matters to me because the Bible talks about the Holy Ghost and fire. John chapter 3 verse 5, it says that we all have to be baptized of the water and the spirit. When it was said uh, by Cornelius, I believe, how shall I do this? Shall I enter a second time into my mother's womb? And, And Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of the water and the spirit, that fire except he be cleansed and taken through the water and the fire. The battle's not over until the the material is cleansed. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. I love that about God because it is line on line. I love that because it's precept upon precept. He showed it back in numbers when they were done with battle, how they handled the things that they wore. And here we are in life, sometimes wondering, thinking that, well, I've already been baptized, so I can't do that again. How do I handle the things of war? But the wonderful thing about baptism is it never goes away. It's something that I can continually say, Lord, you washed me, and now I'm asking you to forgive me again and let me take off this battle that I've been fighting and let me give it back over to you. And those things which need to be washed of water will be washed of water. And then you come down here and you get changed again and you get refilled with the Holy Ghost. And the things which can't be washed by the water of repentance are washed by the fire with the Holy Ghost. That means the depression, the anxiety, all that stuff that we carry in life, and not to mention shame and rebellion and all those things can be washed with water and fire. Isn't that awesome? Isn't God awesome for what he's done? Amen. John, again, was the first one. Matthew 3 and 11, it says, I indeed baptize you with water and repentance, but he is coming after me that is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Here's the awesome part. I'm going to jump to Acts chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. When Acts finally happened, the Bible says that they were going to wait, and it says that it appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a... Like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Cloven tongues, cloven, meaning that it split the fire, and 120 pieces were put upon the men and women. That's what fire can do for us. He split the Holy Ghost so that we might have that. That is a fire for all that who want it. We have to fill up with fire. We've got to be willing to share it. Not only with redigging, there comes a filling. I've talked about that in the past few moments, what filling meant to be filled with his spirit, to be filled uh, with baptism, to be filled with knowledge and understanding. Uh, I loved what Brother Mitchell, when he talked about a vessel on Sunday, 
because how true it was to think that I've got to take everything I've got and carry it with me and then come sharing. You see, I have to know what baptism's all about. It's not enough that I just did it and it's what the Bible said and I accepted it for the moment. I need to know what it's all about. It can take away every hurting pain, every pain, the death of a child, the loss of a parent. It can take away every pain. And so I have to fill that up in my life and I have to carry it. I've got to know why I serve him the way I do and I've got to be about his business. I got about four, three and a half minutes here. You ready? I told you I'm going to end this quick, out of nowhere. <laughs> I had something I was going to read at the end. I'm going to skip that because of this that matters to me. I want revival. And to me, revival starts when I not only know who I serve and I dig out my well, it's when I fill it up with his presence, when I understand that I'm going to have to fast sometimes. I'm going to have to pray sometimes and get on my face and feel the anointing. And I'm going to have to get on fire for him. And then I've got to take that water from the well and the fire and go deliver it to people. You know how I do that? By showing my fruit. The Bible says that a man's going to be known what he's made of by his fruit that he bears. Our fruit matters. Here's the, listen, I'm, I'm a crazy guy. I say crazy because I do things in such a goofy way. I have fun in such a weird way. I'm probably the only one that does it like this. I love going to a Walmart checkout with my wife and making her feel weird. I often do this by just simply carry on a conversation with the cashier. And we get done. She's learned to accept it now, but she most of the time is like, shut up. What are you doing? They don't know you. Why do you act like you know them? And the more I look at it, that's great. I love it. But now I look at my purpose, and it's like I'm taking my vessel, and I'm just carrying it, dropping it off at aisle six. We went to the same lady like three or four weeks in a row. I learned names quick because they got those little tags that have it. You know? <laughs> Leave it was something like Stacy. And this has been a couple years ago, and I haven't seen her since. She was there for a while, and now she's gone. I don't know what happened. Walmart, deal with them. Talk to them. But Stacy had a very sad face the first time. And I said, Stacy, how are you? And she looked at me like, totally forgetting the name tag. Like, how do you know me? It's there. <laughs> and so... She would begin to talk, and she would say, oh, I graduated from Frankfurt. I said, man, that's great. And I would begin to get into her life. You know how I do that? Like a doctor. How many of you know what your doctor does or what he does to have fun or like a hobby? Does anybody know that about their doctor? You're weird if you do. You're weird. It's with precision that they don't tell you about their life. They just find out about yours. They find out your pain. And then they take what they're able to do and bring it to you. We've got to be doctors to this city. If this is going to be a hospital, then I've got to be a doctor. And I've got to go to the people that I know this city's full of hurting people. I've talked to my cousin about how many suicides happen around Clinton County, and it's more than I would ever care to admit because there's hurt and there's pain. So I've got to take everything I've got and go talk to somebody like Stacy and say, Stacy, there's a God that loves you. I've got the antidote, I have the medicine. I know what to do with your battle. I know where to take it. And it really comes down to us being that and showing my kids that I'm just crazy enough to know who Stacy is 
or Matt or Brian. doesn't matter where I go or who I meet. There was a guy, he's a, a vice president of a big construction company. Stand with me. Yeah, I'm going to finish the story. You all thought I wasn't going to finish it. My father ran into him just a couple days ago. And he texted me quickly and said, do you know who this guy is, this Eric guy? And I said, absolutely, he's the vice president of the company. And then he just went silent, and I thought, great, I gave him a ton of information. I got nothing back from it. But then he sent me an email that this Eric had sent. My father had done what he always done. He'll make a connection. That's where I probably learned most of this from, which I thank God for that. That's what I'm trying to say. We've got to teach our children. And so he taught me how to be like that. And Eric simply responded after my dad told him, do you know Brandon Newcomer? That's my son. And, and Eric responded, thank you so much for telling me who he is. Your son and his coworker are absolutely phenomenal. They're the only reason we got a job done. And that man never stops smiling. I love that. If nothing else, I want this world to see that I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be full of joy. There's a poem again. Maybe I will read it. You all okay for two minutes? The rest of you? <laughs> I'm reading it anyway. And it says, an old man going alone highway came at the evening cold and gray to a chasm vast and deep and wide through which the flowing a swollen tide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim. The rapids held no fear for him. But he turned when safe on the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, cried a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your time in building here. Your journey will end and the closing, with the closing day. You will never again will you pass this way. You have crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you this bridge at even tide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, in the path I have come, he said, there follows after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. The stream which has been as naught to me, to that fair youth may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building this bridge for him. If you all would close your eyes with me, we're going to pray together here, but I want to just explain that for two seconds. I pray to God that this truth that we hold doesn't die with me. I pray it doesn't die with this church. I pray it doesn't die in 2020 or in 2030 or in 2040. I pray that even though we've made it through a pitfall, that we build the bridge for the next youth that comes along so that they won't stumble and fall. It matters that the, the very Jesus you hold so dear as you read about him and, and pray to him and understand him and feel him, that you share that with your children, that you share it with the next generation and share what God has done for us and how we know him and how we love him. The Bible says that even though you've cast out devils in my name, even though you've done great miracles and there's been healings, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't want to be that person one day, church, that knows all about God but never knew him enough to carry his word, to carry his salvation to the next generation. I want us to just pray together tonight that God would pierce our hearts with the word, 
that it would begin to be real in us this year. And as we begin to reach this city, that we would carry forth the fruit of the Spirit, that we would be full of that. Can we pray tonight? Lord, we thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would let me, help me, God, to be full of, of, of gentleness, Lord, of love, of meekness, kindness. Lord, let me be full of temperance and patience, God.